Good morning and welcome to Ask the Expert, an award-winning daily live show from 8.30 to 9am to help small businesses. If you have any questions at all, ask them in the comments of the live feed and we'll get to those in a bit. And if you need any more advice, join the official Intuit QuickBooks SMB community group on Facebook. Accountants and business experts are on hand 24-7. During the live session this morning, we'll be running a poll. So do engage with it. And at the end, we'll reveal the results. And remember, on the 3rd of March, you can attend the Intuit QuickBooks virtual event, QuickBooks Connect. This virtual event brings entrepreneurs, small business owners and accountants together to grow, learn and connect with each other. Now, good morning. My name is Paul Lando and I am the founder and CEO of a health tech business called Careology. And we operate in the digital cancer care space. Now, what I wanted to do for the first few minutes before we get into taking lots of your questions is to give you a bit, a little bit of background into the last 20 years or so that I've worked in the health technology space. Um, it's been a fascinating journey over that period of time, um, which has taken lots of twists and turns, um, kind of as my knowledge of the space has really evolved um, over that, that period of time. What's been really interesting for me is how there's been very much a thread that has run way back um, from my university days, looking at how data could be used to change behaviors. And if I go right back to my final year at university where I studied management sciences um, at UMIS, which is now part of Manchester Business School, um, was probably the first time when I really started to look at data and started to be interested in how data could be used um, to change people's behaviors. And for me, something that really sticks out like a sore thumb was a guest lecture that was given um, way back in, it must've been 1996 in my final year at university by Sir Terry Leahy, who at the time was the chief executive of Tesco's. And for um, most of the hour, which he came in to talk to us undergraduates, um, he very much focused on Tesco club card and I was absolutely fascinated by some of the insights that he gave around how data was used in a shopping environment to really drive loyalty and really try to personalize the shopping experience by understanding in a, such a sophisticated way how all of our shopping behaviors in terms of what our family makeup is, um, perhaps what somebody is trying to achieve at home so they could spot this person is trying to lose weight or this family have children at home through the things that we were buying, they would then put that data to use to try and incentivize us to buy the right products, um, probably with the highest margin, um, based on, as I say, those insights they were able to glean. And as I say, that was probably the first time I really got interested and excited by data and how it could be used to drive behavior change. And then jumping forward, I graduated and I went to go and work for Accenture, where I was at for just about five years, and probably inspired by um, that, that module and that course that I did while studying, um, I found myself in Accenture's retail practice, um, where I did work for clients like Marks & Spencer's, Argos, Littlewoods, and a big piece of a lot of the work that I used to do was data, looking at data mining and again, looking at how behaviours could be changed. Um, through things like loyalty programs. Now, in parallel to that, um, I was someone who was absolutely hopeless at football. So you may ask why I'm sharing that fact. It's not particularly interesting in itself. But what that actually meant was I 
got very much into my own personal health and fitness. So instead of going to going to play football um, on a Wednesday afternoon with lots of my friends, um, I would always be taking myself down to the gym and I was working out for five days a week. And I think what really became um, for me a, a real uh, eye opener was the fact that I learned that the gym market typically loses about 60% of their membership base every year. And I think kind of in the early 2000s, these two kind of passions of mine were starting to collide. One was, you know, the, the kind of work I was doing um, through my employment, looking at data. And the other was this insight through the passion of mine, health and fitness and working out, really kind of bemused that the health and fitness chains this time of year, actually, you know, beginning of the year, January, they fill up that bucket um, with a huge peak in terms of the numbers of people that join um, their gyms. But by February and into March, obviously, they're then starting to, people are starting to wane, starting to drop out. And the gyms start to think, well, how do we actually um, stop that happening? And it became very clear to me there was very little sophistication around that at all. Even just a regular swipe through a turnstile really wasn't being put to use effectively to say, how could we use this data to try and hold on to these members for longer rather than having this bucket um, where people are dropping out? So long story short, um, the coming together of those two interests over the next few years led to the creation of Fitbug, which was my first venture that I launched in January 2005. Now, Fitbug was in the wearable technology space, but interestingly, um, I never saw the company as a wearables business. Everyone else did, and people would always talk about the device and the gadget that you would wear on your waist or carry in your pocket at the time. Um, I actually saw Fitbug very much as a service company and a data company. And for me, it was all about the data. How could we use the data that came off a device to help somebody achieve a goal that was important to them? Now, back then, I was working very much in um, the uh, health and wellness space, um, looking to uh, predominantly at how by using exercise data and the number of steps a day someone was taking, we could help them get a bit fitter or lose a bit of weight, which are probably the two main goals that most people would have. And over the years, um, we were predominantly in the B2B space. Um, we opened an office in the States, in Chicago, um, but we were working with people like Vitality Health or Crew Health in the early years. Um, Bupa um, became an investor in the business. Um, we worked with people like United Healthcare and Optum in the US. Um, and what we learned over those years is really the importance of how you could put data to work, as I say, to help somebody achieve a goal. And some of the key things that we learned about were things, techniques like incentivization, gamification and challenges, how you could use carefully timed communications to nudge somebody along to achieve that goal that was important to them. Now, as you can imagine, over time, the market started to really um, uh, get established. Um, much bigger players came into the market um, as well. So people like Nike, Fitbit, Jawbone, then Apple Watch. So the devices started to become a lot more sophisticated and you could do a lot more with them. Um, a drum that I started banging really around 2014 and into 2015 was as the market was starting to become established and people really understood the role that devices and sensors could work, was how we could start to adopt a lot of those principles into much more of the disease management space. So how could we start to move away from just counting steps and getting a bit fitter to really how we could use sensors and devices and that sort of data 
to help somebody manage a health condition that was complex um, and could be monitored from afar. Now, what I didn't know when I started talking around this kind of evolution of the space was that a year later, my wife would be diagnosed with cancer. Um, and in late 2015, uh, my wife, who was pregnant at the time, um, was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma, a type of blood cancer. And I think what became very clear to me as I watched her go through her treatment was what a huge opportunity there was to apply lots of the lessons from the consumer health tech space and apply it into much more of the med tech and disease management space. And I think for me, it just became so clear that this drum that I'd been previously banging really had to be explored in a lot more, um, with a lot more um, vigor, I guess. Um, and I guess there were a few things that really stuck out to me, which is a patient when they're at home with a complex disease state has so many things that they need to get very good at managing very quickly from managing medications, symptoms, side effects, appointments, keeping a treatment journal. And using that information, that individual, that patient is actually quite isolated from there at home, having to make almost daily judgment calls as to when they should be picking up the phone to a caregiver or to a clinician to let them know that there may be something presenting that could be a cause for concern. And what we also found out as a family is that very often patients will get that wrong for lots of reasons. First of all, they're not clinicians. Um, they often don't want to be a nuisance. You get sick of being sick and don't want to go back into hospital for yet more prodding. So what we've now created through Kerology is a health tech platform that really looks to bridge that gap. So essentially within Kerology, we now have mobile technology that better equips the patient to manage the raft of things that they need to get very good at. We then can connect that individual to their caregivers, so friends and family. So how do you enable your, your friends and family to have an understanding that you're sitting at home potentially with, I don't know, a fever that no one else knows about, medications that you haven't yet taken to help them manage, um, manage you? Um, and then lastly, how do we enable clinicians um, to have much better insight when somebody is at home so they can start to work far more proactively to help ensure that individual has the least number of complications as they're going through their treatment and therefore gets the best possible health outcome that they can achieve. So essentially, um, that's a very quick um, overview of the last 20 years or so, but this fascination of how you could use data to drive behavior change. So as you can see, right at the beginning, it was looking at a retail setting for how you can drive loyalty, then moving into health and wellness for how you could achieve, help somebody achieve a health and wellness goal, goal for them that's important. But now in this current chapter at Kerology Health, it's really now looking at a far more complicated um, area, but still very much the same principles of how you can take data, provide insights that can help somebody manage their own complex condition, but also provide those insights for a third party to help them help you get the best health outcome that you can. So I hope that wasn't too fast. I can see on my screen, lots of questions are now starting to come through, which is great. Please do keep them coming. Um, I will try and answer as many as I can um, over the next 20 minutes or so, but I will say if I don't manage to get to your question, I'll give you my um, contact details at the end so I can follow up afterwards. So let's start taking um, some questions here. So first one, Albert from Twitter DM. Thank you, Albert. Okay, what obstacles did you have to face when setting up your, your business? 
and how did you handle adversity and those who doubted your initial idea? Well, I love that question, Alba, thank you, because I can't tell you when I left Accenture um, and uh, started uh, Fitbug, how many of my friends and colleagues said to me, you're leaving your job at a big corporate firm to sell pedometers. Now, clearly that wasn't really what I had in my mind. Um, but yes, there were certainly lots of people out there who doubted that idea. Um, and I think really the key thing here is you've got to have the power of your convictions. Um, you know, I think you really have to have self-belief. I think you need to do your homework, though, when you start a new business, really research the market, really understand the market that you are intending to go after to check it's actually there. Um, but I think once you've done that research, um, you have to have the power of your convictions. Um, I'm a particularly stubborn person. I don't like to take no for an answer. Um, and once I have the bit between my teeth, I, I go for it. Um, so I hope that gives you um, a bit of an answer there. Just have the power of your convictions and go for it once you're sure um, that your idea is a runner. Um, next one, Shannon from Instagram DM. Thanks, Shannon. Hi, Paul. Um, what, according to you, is the future of wearables? You have seen this space from a very uh, nascent age. Do you think we are near its peak? Again, really good question, Shannon. And there's, there's no doubt that the market has moved a huge amount over the last few years. Um, and obviously, at the beginning, it started off on quite basic devices that counted steps. And, you know, back in the old days, there wasn't even um, Bluetooth low energy yet. So you were still plugging devices into micro USB connectors that had to upload data to a website. So clearly now we've moved to Bluetooth enabled devices, um, mobile um, apps and mobile browsers rather than just plain websites. But also the amount of stuff that devices and sensors that are commonly available today continues to evolve. You know, the latest generation wearables that so many of us today wear on our wrists are now able to count heart rate, um, blood pressure, O2 stats, temperature. So it's quite amazing the increased sophistication of different devices. And obviously, it's not just left to wrist. They, you've got devices that were now being worn in lots of different areas on our bodies. So I don't think um, it's, it's near its peak. I think devices will continue to evolve and can, will continue to become more sophisticated than what, what they can measure. For me, though, it's all now, as I've been talking about, really about the data. It's how do you take that data and put it to work in the most intelligent way possible? So you know, there's lots of talk now um, and, and fascinating businesses out there using data around AI. And it's how you put that data to work, which for me is the really exciting thing going forward. OK, um, just looking down my screen here. Velmont. Thank you, Velmont. Facebook Messenger. Hi, Paul. Um, how has this last COVID ridden year been for you and your business? Have you seen any trends you are focusing your efforts on? Well, again, a really good question and obviously a topical question. Um, Velmont, there's no doubt that, uh, that every business out there has been um, affected by, by COVID, obviously. Um, I think the health tech space um, has probably been um, one of those areas which has seen a lot more recognition and has really started to accelerate over the last year. Um, I think that even the most conservative of clinician who was old school and would like to have all of their consultations one-to-one -one in a clinical setting with the patient sitting in front of them, has over the last year had to adopt new ways of working. So we've seen a, a huge amount of growth, certainly in the early stages of COVID, um, with far more video consultations taking place um, than, than previously. 
But I think also now a lot of the principles that I've been talking about this morning um, around the use of data is something which we're now seeing a huge amount more um, interest in. I think you know the health tech and the med tech space has always been quite a conservative industry. And we were really starting to see adoption for the kinds of technologies and digital tools that I've been talking about um, through with, with Careology. But there's no doubt that COVID has accelerated interest. And for me, um, I really feel very confident that the genie's out the bottle now. Um, clinicians are now starting to understand the benefits that these types of tools can um, deliver. Um, and I certainly don't think that as we start to come through the pandemic, this is just going to disappear. Um, I certainly think adoption of digitization is going to continue happening for the foreseeable future now um, in, the, in the medical space. Okay, um, let's move on to the next question here. Archer from Twitter DM. Hi Paul, I'm intrigued by the idea of journaling your treatment journey. Can you tell us how it helps in the process? Yeah, absolutely Archer. So um, there were several things from my own family's experience as my wife was going through her cancer treatment that she was told she had to get very good at doing if she could. And one of them was to keep a treatment journal and I think really um, there were various reasons that clinicians and the nursing team um, required her or asked her to keep a journal. Um, one was kind of from an introspective perspective. I think a lot of people going through such a complex diagnosis and a complex journey can find it quite cathartic to write down and keep a record of how they're feeling. But probably most importantly, when somebody comes back into hospital for their next cycle of treatment, it's really important that they're able to communicate back to the, the clinical team how they've been in the intervening um, weeks between cycles of treatment. Now, so, you know, the kind of drugs that people going through cancer treatment take um, cause what's commonly called um, chemo brain, and people often get really, um, really fuzzy recollection of how they've been um, in the days after receiving treatment. You know, if you look at that in context, if you asked me right now how I was last Tuesday, I couldn't possibly tell you. I think I was fine. Um, but did I have a headache? Did I have a bit of a cold? I, I don't know. And, you know, you try asking somebody who's on a huge amount of medication and going through such a daunting time to ac accurately recollect how they were um, in the previous weeks. It's incredibly difficult. And there's obviously, with some with drugs like chemotherapy, a real buildup of toxicities in the system. So it's very hard for clinicians to actually understand over time um, the cumulative effects of that treatment. So journaling is incredibly important. And one of the things that we've done through Careology is make it very easy using a traffic light system to recollect through a red, amber, green indicator um, if something was particularly severe or complex on any particular day. So now if I'm sitting down with a clinician, I go back in and want to look at my journal, instead of having to turn the pages and read through, say, the last two weeks worth of history to understand what was going on, um, I can now see, oh, okay, last Tuesday I had an orange day, what was happening? So it makes it really easy for me to recollect exactly what symptoms I was suffering from on that particular day. So Archer, thank you for that question. Um, I, hope, I hope that helps. Okay, next question, Bao from Instagram DM. Good morning, Paul. There's a lot of debate about data security and privacy, especially when it comes to health related data, which is very personal. What are your thoughts on it and what kind of steps do you take in your company to mitigate the risks? 
Yeah, it's a big it's a big topic, isn't it? So absolutely. Um, we're obviously dealing with pretty sensitive data. Um, I think the good news these days is there is a huge amount of um, regulation. So, you know, GDPR is a whole big topic, which I don't profess to be an expert in. So I won't be getting into the details of GDPR. But certainly um, companies op op operating in the health tech space clearly have to make sure that they are looking at both um, regulations around GDPR and how data is stored and managed, but also from a technical architecture perspective, there's a real responsibility to make sure that you have built a solution which has the right levels of encryption and data security, um, password protections, there's a whole gamut of things that you have to consider. Um, so absolutely, it's something which is very much front of mind as we've architected the solution, um, uh, as we've looked at internal processes, team procedures, um, password policies, et cetera, et cetera. So yes, it, it's a big topic, um, but one which companies operating in this space have to take incredibly seriously and invest time, money and effort in. Oh, there's a related question. So I'm just seeing pop up on my screen under bows um, from Lee from Facebook Messenger. I am setting up a company with my friend and none of us are data experts. Do you think this is something we can learn as we go? Or would it be good to take some courses to develop our skills? So I think, I think Lee, um, just linked into my the last question from Bao. Um, absolutely, um, it's something that you can still go ahead with in a data-driven uh, data company. Um, I wouldn't profess to be a data expert myself. Um, I still think, though, when it comes to um, understanding this space, there's lots of good expertise out there. And I think, you know, you may need to set up um, an advisory team at the beginning, you know, who can you get, um, certainly in the early stages, to hold your hand, um, help you understand what it is that you're trying to achieve, what is the data that you're trying to establish, what are the data sets? Um, and I guess, as per Bao's question, what are the extra considerations that you need to think at from a privacy and data security perspective? So I would certainly say, of course, there are courses um, that you can do. Um, and absolutely, um, I would just invest time getting yourselves up the learning curve in the area that you're, you're looking at. But try and find external um, people who can help you and offer that advice to hold your hands um, in those early stages as well. So, yes, do your research um, and get up that learning curve. Okay, uh, next question um, from Roman on Instagram DM. As a business owner, what would you advise small business owners and self-employed individuals who are going through the most difficult phase in their entrepreneurial journey? Um, a good question. Um, it would be good to have a little bit more context there, Roman. Um, I would certainly say I kind of alluded to this, um, I think the first question I took. Um, I think being a business owner, um, starting a new venture, a startup, it's tough. It's, it's definitely tough and it's not for everybody. Um, I, I don't think everyone is cut out um, for it, um, but I think you have to be able to, as I said at the beginning, have the power of your convictions, do that research before you start your business. Um, and just be dogged, be determined, um, make sure you believe in what it is that you're trying to do before you set off on that journey. Um, but, you know, just just be dogged, um, get the bit between your teeth and, and go for it. Um, 
there's lots of difficult phases, but I think there's so many exciting phases as well. It's definitely a roller coaster starting a business. There's lots of ups and downs and highs and lows, um, but that is actually what makes it really exciting. And it's it's the challenge. And for me, there's nothing more exciting than being able to take an idea that may well have just started in the back of your head or the back of an envelope um, and be able to turn that into reality and start to see the first people use and adopt um, whatever it is that you are you are looking to, to build and establish. So um, I would just say, once you're confident that you know what you want to do, um, go for it and enjoy the journey. Um, it really will be one. Okay, I can see we've got um, one more question coming in front of me. Um, and in terms of time, we have got about five minutes left, so please do keep them coming. Um, Katrina from Instagram Story, were you always confident about your business growth, especially in the early stages? Well, again, Katrina, a good story, and it's kind of there's a bit of a theme coming through some of these questions. Um, was I always confident about my business growth, especially in the early stages? Um, I think I was always confident in the vision um, and confident, having done that research that I've already talked about, that there was a real need. So by the time I, I wanted to launch a new venture, um, I made sure that I had that confidence that the market existed um, and that there was a real appetite for what it was that I wanted to bring to market. And as I kind of answered on the previous question, um, that's not to say it's not difficult. And as I said, businesses go through highs and lows. Um, but I think to answer your question, yes, I've always been confident um, about the end result of what I wanted to achieve. But that's not to say there aren't challenging periods along the way um, where you do ask questions, ask difficult questions. Um, but I think that's really important as well. There's no point in having blind faith um, and not um, taking the time to step back, challenge yourself um, and ask questions that that need need to be answered. And that's why businesses do pivot, um, do change direction, because you learn a huge amount as any new business gets off the ground. So don't be afraid to take a step back um, and keep an eye on the bigger picture um, as you go as well. I think that's really important. Okay, um, Gina from Twitter DM. Thank you, Gina. Um, hi, Paul. There has been an increase in the general mental health uh, of people across the globe. Are there any parameters like step count that can be tracked to monitor mental health? Again, really good question. Thank you all. Some great questions coming in this morning. Um, absolutely. You know, someone's already asked me a question about this last year. Um, I don't think it's new news to, to anybody that the lockdown, the pandemic has been an incredibly difficult period for everyone. And the impact that's had on mental health um, has been has been immense. Um, are there gen um, are there parameters like steps that can be tracked? Well, yes, yes, I think there are. And I've got to be honest, uh, mental health isn't um, my ex area of expertise. There's lots of research that shows how important exercise is um, to impact mental health. Um, I don't have the stats and the studies in front of me right now, but I'd be happy to share some of those um, with you if you wanted to message me afterwards. Um, but there, there's no doubt that exercise, like taking more steps, can help people um, uh, with mental health concerns. Um, within Careology, one of the things we actually do is quite a very, well, actually a really simple but very effective um, little widget where we use emojis to ask people, how are you feeling at the moment? Um, and that's just a really simple way of us being able to manage 
and communicate back to the clinical team and have a record of how somebody's mood and mental health has has changed over time. Um, I'm not sure I've, that really answers your question. Um, I hope it does, Bishop, but I'll be pleased to follow up with you um, if you've got any further questions on that. Um, so, Gina, thank you. Sorry, Gina, that was the last question we actually have time to take right now. Thank you, everyone. Those, those have been some great, um, great questions this morning, and I hope I've been able to give you some good answers. So just starting to wrap up now, um, big drum roll. I can see that the poll results are in. And the question was, have you pivoted your business in the last year? And the answer is 25% of you have said yes, and 75% have answered no. Well, that's, that's really interesting. Um, I think clearly the last year has been incredibly challenging um, and certainly in the in the tech kind of startup scene, um, I think most businesses that I speak to have to some degree pivoted, um, even if they're small pivots, certainly had to make changes to how they're operating and look at doing things in slightly different ways. So, so actually I'm fairly surprised that a such a substantial amount of people have said no, but clearly it depends what space you're in. Um, and the ability for a business to pivot. Um, so yes, 25% said yes, 75% no. Really interesting result there. So we're coming to the end now, and I'd like to thank you all very much for tuning in this morning. I hope you found, you found it to be an interesting session. If you'd like to follow up with me with any further questions or anything you'd like clarifying, please do get in touch with me through LinkedIn. Um, my name is Paul Lando, pretty easy to find on LinkedIn, that's L-A-N-D-A-U. And then coming up on Ask the Expert tomorrow is Jeremy Stern. Jeremy is the man behind all those TV shows that say, and the votes have been independently verified. Jeremy is the founder of Promo Veritas, the European leader in promotional compliance. So tune in tomorrow morning to learn the secrets of winning prize promotions. Don't forget to join the official Intuit QuickBooks SMB group on Facebook and also register for QuickBooks Connect. You can find the link in the comments. Thank you all so much for joining. I've really enjoyed answering your questions this morning. Have a great day. Thank you very much.